You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. This is a fortnightly podcast and you are listening to a Blind Spot episode, which is shorter bonus content I release between my principal episodes. This Blind Spot happens to be sandwiched between part one and part two of a series on Kaspar Hausa, the mysterious foundling of early 19th century Bavaria. As such, I highly recommend you take the time to listen to episode seven, Kaspar Hauser, part one, foundling before enjoying this blind spot, which serves as an interlude and bridges the two halves of that story. For this is the story of another foundling, although this one, not a child, who appeared in England almost exactly 11 years previously, give or take a month, and one who also excited the sympathies of all who encountered her. She too inspired and even encouraged legends of having been born of royalty in her native land, And this she accomplished without ever speaking a word that could be understood by her adherents. This is the story of Princess Karabu of Javasu. On an April evening in 1817, in the village of Almondsbury in County Gloucester, a beautiful black-haired woman who looked to be in her mid-twenties appeared at the open door of a reverend's cottage and made gestures indicating she wanted to come in and rest on the couch. She wore all black, black gown, black shawl, black stockings, and even her eyes were deep black pools. She appeared unable to speak a word of English. Beyond her gestures, she expressed herself in a tongue understood by none and was thus referred to the local overseer of the poor who in turn brought her that very evening to the mansion of a local magistrate, Mr. Worrell, for he was aware that in the household there lived a servant who spoke several foreign languages. This mysterious foreign woman appeared reluctant to enter the mansion, but relented upon the kind invitation of the lady of the house, Mrs. Worrell, who that evening became charmed by the prepossessing young woman and greatly concerned for her well-being. Mrs. Worrell put her up in a public house that night, where in the parlor 
The woman pointed to a picture of a pineapple and appeared to indicate she was familiar with the fruit. Some other hints at her country of origin could be gleaned from her unusual customs at the public house and afterwards during her brief stay at St. Peter's Hospital as a vagrant. She refused any meat or alcohol, much like Kaspar Hauser would a decade later, taking only tea and preferring rice and bread, seeming in fact to favor a vegetarian Hindustani diet, especially savoring curries. Furthermore, she appeared unfamiliar with traditional beds, needing to be shown how to use them. All of these clues seemed to indicate that she originated from some tropical and perhaps Asian locale, and yet she seemed to adhere to some Christian traditions, praying over her food and at her bedside before sleeping, and showing some recognition of the significance of the cross. Mrs. Worrell, who continued to visit her despite wariness that the young woman might be making a fool of her, spoke to her frankly in English, begging her to come clean and promising to offer her aid regardless of any deception. But the young woman remained impassive, convincing Mrs. Worrell that she understood English not at all. With a little more coaxing and gesturing, she got the girl to share her name, which she pronounced as Karabu. Many people came to visit this Karabu during her stay at the hospital. They brought books with them in hopes that Karabu might indicate her place of origin by pointing at a map or a picture, while others brought foreign-born visitors they believed might be able to discern Karabu's language. Eventually, one such visitor, a Portuguese man from Malaysia named Manuel Ineso, finally declared the language she spoke to be an admixture of Sumatran and some other Indonesian island dialects, interpreting her words to tell her story in broad strokes, that she was of high birth in her homeland and had been kidnapped from her island, brought across the world to England and abandoned. Upon Ineso's word that Karabu was genuine, Mrs. Worrell insisted that the poor girl return to live with her. Indeed, she became something of an object of curiosity during her stay at the mansion of her benefactress, and men of high pedigree would come to see her and question her for themselves, some of them supposedly learned men, linguists, physiognomists, and craniologists. One among these, a man who had himself made multiple voyages to the East Indies, recorded the particulars of Karabu's tale based on his understanding of her tongue and interpretation of her gestures. By this account, Karabu was a princess of an island called Javasu, daughter of a Chinese-born chieftain who went about carried by common folk on a palanquin and a Malaysian mother who had been killed by cannibals. Her own trouble had started when out for a stroll in her royal garden at Javasu, accompanied by some ladies-in-waiting. Pirates ambushed them, bound and gagged them, and carried them off to their ship. Too late did her father realize the crime. He swam after the pirate ship and shot an arrow but only succeeded in killing one of Karabu's handmaids. Karabu herself fought valiantly, killing one pirate with a dagger and wounding another, but to no avail. The pirates made good their escape and within two weeks sold her to another pirate captain. This second ship she found herself on appeared to trade in female flesh, as Karabu described them stopping at ports, 
acquiring other women as prisoners, and then offloading them again at other ports. Eventually, the ship on which she remained a prisoner sailed for Europe. After months at sea suffering at the hands of pirates, she leapt overboard at the first sign of the English coast. Thereafter, she wandered from house to house, begging before finding her way to Almondsbury and the charity of Mrs. Worrell. During her stay of some ten weeks at the Worrell mansion, and despite the suspicions of some who believed her a fraud, Princess Caribou never once faltered in her character as not only a devout and demure princess, but also a fierce and exotic warrior. She presented quite a sight to the Worrells and their guests. Fashioning her own dresses in the style of her culture, with long wide sleeves and a large band of cloth wrapping her midsection, she went about in a homemade headdress of feathers and flowers, balancing plates of fruit on her fingertips, and performing elaborate yet delicate dances unlike any they had seen before, falling to one knee and rising in agile leaps, lifting a foot in a sling and waltzing in strange, contorted ways. On the Warall estate, she was known to paddle a boat out into the pond or sit in the top of a tree to avoid the company of men. Additionally, she made a show of keeping track of time using an odd system of knotted strings, and she carried a tambourine and a gong on her person, which she struck and rattled as she saw fit. Perhaps most strikingly, she armed herself like a true Disney warrior princess, with a bow and arrow on her shoulder and a sword and dagger at her waist. Nor was she unskilled in the use of these weapons, as she was seen many times to practice with them, and indeed a gentleman somewhat skilled at fencing found himself unable to disarm her. Try as they might, her doubters could not catch her out. One man looked deeply into her eyes and declared in no uncertain terms that she was the most beautiful creature he had ever beheld. But she gave no outward blush or any other indication that she had understood his words. Servants of the household who perhaps resented the privilege extended to the mysterious girl contrived to prove her an impostor by lying awake to hear if she talked in her sleep. But she appeared to speak her native language even in her sleep. And when woken suddenly, she never had a slip of the tongue. Indeed, no one ever heard her speak anything other than her strange language, and in this she was consistent as well, with certain words always used in the same manner, meaning the same thing. Moshe for man, Raglish for woman, Peki for child. Night was Anna, and morning, Mono. Ake brasidu, she might say, meaning come for breakfast or inju jagus, meaning do not be afraid. As such an interesting character, it's no surprise that her story made it into newspapers. And it may also come as no great shock then that, having read about Princess Caribou in the papers, someone contacted Mrs. Worrell to inform her that her guest was an imposter. A poor girl out of Devonshire named Mary Baker, known for her eccentricity, and propensity to spin tales. Thus, armed with evidence of Caribou's imposture, Mrs. Worrell sat her down and confronted her. Caribou, 
or rather Mary Baker, at first attempted to continue feigning an inability to understand Mrs. Worrell. But eventually she broke down and admitted her deception. She claimed to have previously lived in Bombay as the nurse of a European family and to have come to England after living some time on an island east of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. But this too was discovered to be a lie and eventually Baker told a truer story, although this one no less shocking for the tragedy therein. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Mary Baker had lived in the village of Witheridge in her youth. She had somewhat of a rebellious temperament, disobedient and ambitious. Her parents more than once arranged employment for her, and she consistently left these positions in dissatisfaction, returning home again. She struck out on her own then, and after finding some work in Exeter, she took her earnings, bought some fine clothing, and again left her position to return home. This time, however, seeing her new clothing, her father accused her of theft and she left again, becoming a beggar and a vagabond. During this miserable time, she seriously considered hanging herself and was in fact in the process of tying her apron strings to a tree in a deserted country lane to accomplish the act when she believed she heard a voice saying that such an act was a sin against God. 
Untying her apron strings then, she went about her vagrant life, sleeping in haylofts and panhandling from house to house, once begging at a constable's house and only just escaping imprisonment. Finally succumbing to hunger and fatigue, she collapsed and was saved by a passing wagon, the drivers of which took her to London, where some other good Samaritans conducted her to a hospital. There she stayed for months, delirious and being treated for what they styled a quote-unquote brain fever, which treatment consisted mostly of cupping, blistering, and bloodletting. In her delirium, she considered the nurses to be angels, of whom she daily inquired whether she was dead. After her hospital stay, she was adopted by a charitable family that taught her to read. But after three years of happiness, Mary defied her mistress's wishes by contriving to make time with a servant cook. After the ensuing falling out, she again left her comfortable circumstances in a headstrong huff returning to her vagabond's life before ending up as a housemaid at a convent. However, upon sharing her story in its entirety, she was accused of falsehood, for surely she was a sinful girl and not the unfortunate innocent that she presented herself to be. And again she was turned out, this time by a minister. Thereafter, due to the dangers of life on the streets and highways, she passed herself off as a man. And it was during this time that she was taken in by highwaymen, robbers who were looking to recruit her as a fellow blackguard. Upon uncovering her true gender, made obvious by the way she cried out when discharging a gun, these highwaymen ended up paying her to keep her silence about their hideout and their crimes. After escaping these criminals, she took a variety of positions in different households, in Exeter and back again in London. During this time, she claimed to meet a man who married her, took her traveling, and then abandoned her back in London with child. After delivering her baby, she took the child to a foundling hospital and asked that they take the baby in, for she had no means of supporting it. Still, she visited the baby regularly, until such time as she learned that the child had taken ill and passed away. Thereafter, she left London for good. During these most recent years of vagrancy, she fell in with gypsies for an undisclosed period of time, and it was perhaps from these that she learned the trick of passing herself off as a foreigner. For after this time, she admitted to going from town to town and from house to house, pretending not to speak any English and thereby exciting the sympathy and charity of almost everyone she encountered. Thus, when she arrived at Almondsbury, she was already well-practiced in her imposture. And she certainly had been aided in her pretense, for throughout her narrative she spoke of people who falsely claimed to recognize her language, which she admitted now was pure gibberish. Some had called it Spanish, and others French. Indeed, Manuel Ineso, in claiming he recognized her speech as Indonesian, had greatly helped to convince everyone of her veracity. Yet all she had done was babble nonsense words, letting others who wished to seem knowledgeable do the rest. It seemed, actually, that most of her story had been invented by those trying to interpret her gibberish and gestures and that she had merely played along. 
Remember that the people who visited her and speculated upon her origins and customs did so in clear English, within earshot, affording her the advantage of showing them just what they were looking for. For example, she had actually heard the servants who conspired to stay up and listen to her in her sleep, so she had remained awake herself and pretended to speak her gibberish language even while sleeping. Mrs. Worrell checked on her story, of course, and found it corroborated in almost every detail, except for the detail of who the father of her child had been. He may have been a gentleman who married her and swept her away in travel, or he may have been a day laborer, or even the husband of one of the families she had served. Regardless, as Mary Baker, aka Princess Karabu, had never attempted to bilk her or otherwise misuse her outright, and had only stayed at the mansion at Mrs. Worrell's own insistence, she did Baker one last favor and paid her way to America, where this remarkable and resourceful woman disappeared from history and may have actually continued her impostures. Indeed, who knows what she might have made of herself. The parallels between Princess Karabu and Kaspar Hauser are numerous. They both appeared to be innocent creatures in distress and relied on the charity of strangers. Both displayed unusual eating habits and both inspired legends of having come from royal lineage, legends that they themselves may have encouraged. It is difficult to make the argument that Kaspar Hauser himself had heard the story of Princess Karabu and decided to perpetrate a similar fraud, although this is entirely possible. What is rather easier to assume is that the general public had heard the story of Princess Karabu, for a narrative by John Matthew Gutch, which I have relied on for this account, appeared the very same year in 1817. This famous story of a false foundling, an impostor passing herself off as royalty, may have contributed to the turning of opinion against Kaspar Hauser. For although the theory that he was a lost prince was rising, so too was the notion that he was a sham. Thank you for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the conclusion of my series on Kaspar Hauser. Some of the music in this episode was provided by Creepy Pizza. Find this artist on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. If you liked this episode and are interested in historical hoaxes, charlatans, and imposters, you'll love my novel, Manuscript Found, about the founding of Mormonism. Poke around the website at historicalblindness.com to find links to my book on Amazon, read the blog entries, find the show's social media profiles, and donate. Review the show on iTunes if you can. Keep listening for a special message from Jeremy Collins of the Podcasts We Listen To podcast, who's organizing a great podcasting event next year in New Orleans. Until next time, look harder. Ask yourself, does it bear up under scrutiny? 
Hi, this is Jeremy from the Podcast We Listen To podcast. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about a thing that we're putting together called PodCon 2018. This is a convention of podcast listeners, for podcast listeners, and by podcast listeners. And yeah, hosts are listeners too. I listen all day long. This is going to be the fall of 2018 in New Orleans, and it's going to be a blast. It's being put together by myself, members of the podcast we listen to Facebook group, and hosts of several of your favorite shows, including Dina from Twisted Philly and Allie from Insight. Fall of 2018 gives us time to put it together right. We're really looking forward to it. There is so much excitement. The podcast we listen to Facebook group is blowing up over it. For more information, you can join the podcast we listen to Facebook group, or you can follow at PodCon2018 on Twitter. And as soon as we finalize more details, we will put those out there for you. In the meantime, just keep listening to your favorite shows, and you'll probably hear something about it. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.